0: If you would take your bible open it to 1 John chapter 3 1 John chapter 3 So thankful for the leadership and music this morning the musicians what a joy it is to praise God with you Amen So thankful last week to have Ed Heinsey with us and to hear him exposit The word. Um, One of the experiences that I don't get to have very often anymore is sitting next to my wife and hearing someone else preach. And so, when capable brothers like Braxton or Ed come along and do a great job of doing that, I'm forever grateful. Um, You all have to know that as uh, you know, first, my identity in as a believer is I'm just a kid who is mesmerized by the fact that Christ would redeem any one of us. And so getting to hear that uh, truth proclaimed last week was such a joy. And that phrase, I don't know about y'all, but this whole week, my my mind has just been enraptured with that one phrase, they had a mind to work. Uh, Wasn't that an exceptional gift from God's Word? And isn't it a joy that as a church together, uh, we have a calling to have a mind to work And to be in the word and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. So thankful for that. So, this morning, let's get to work. Let's go back to 1 John. If you're a first-time guest with us today, uh, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you. I'm always prone to say pew. Pew. And there have never been pews in this sanctuary since I've been here. But in the seat in front of you, there is a Bible that is our gift to you. Uh, Turn to 1 John, one of the latter books in all of the Bible. And I think uh, one of the greatest doctrinal books in all of the Bible. Gives us much clarity. We've been considering in our work this far the reasons for which... Christ appeared or was manifested. I think, it's, I think it's very providential that we get to consider these two realities in 1 John chapter 3 as we head into the holiday season, into the time that we put our minds to the coming of Christ in Christmas. Um, and it is, it is a gift to be able to be at this point in Scripture and a gift of providence to consider the real reasons why. And we've already considered from verse 5, John writing, you know that he appeared, that he was manifested, that he came as a historical fact in order to take away sins. And in him is no sin. He came into the world to take our sins on himself, to give us his righteousness, we call that double imputation, to give us a new nature and new life, a life that beats out rhythms of obedience to the Word and the will of God. But here we come, and a few verses later, and we're going to kind of sum up this section next week. Um, but this week we come to verse eight, and we find a second reason for Christ's coming. The reason, The Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, it might seem insignificant to be concerned with the reasons why Christ appeared. But as it turns out, this simple understanding that the Bible lays before us plainly is so often misunderstood in our generations and so much false teaching throughout history has brushed up against this topic. And it has disastrous effects when we don't understand why Jesus came. Jesus did not come, beloved, merely to teach or to set an example or to manifest the presence of God. Now, He did those things. We'll talk about that a little bit more. He did those things, but that's not the explicit reason why He came. There's always the danger. I think Paul... John, the apostles understood there is this danger in the proclamation of the gospel, the historical reality that the Son of God came into the world to save sinners, to bring together a new creation, the church, his people. There is this danger that the gospel gets twisted into a mere philosophy, a viewpoint on how to live life, a mere teaching but in fact it's not that uh, the the gospel again is a historical reality and a historical reality that we just don't think of in terms of antiquity but it is a historical reality that has implications into our lives at this very moment Jesus completed the work of redemption on the cross and we see His work in the resurrection and in the ascension. We're going to consider that in a little while. But the reality is that Jesus is still at work today. He is still building His church today. He is still drawing people to Himself today. He is still taking men and women, boys and girls who are lost in their trespasses and sins and making them alive unto salvation. He is building His church. And the gospel that the apostles and prophets came to proclaim was not one of mere philosophy. It was one of historical, settled fact. They proclaimed, in fact, what they had experienced, which is where 1 John, for those of you who have not been with us, starts out. That which was from the beginning, John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit here, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. He appeared, beloved. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. It's not just a philosophy. It's not that which we have concocted. It's not that which we in our academic institutions have really fleshed out. It is that reality that they have seen and heard and laid their hands upon the person and the work of Jesus. That is what they are proclaiming in the gospel. It's the same message that I have to proclaim today. 2,000 years, it has not changed. In the ebbing and flowing of all of the political realities and nations rising and falling, the gospel has been sure and certain. So again, the question today: why did Christ appear? Verse 5, he appeared to take away sins. And verse 8, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. With that in mind, if you would. Stand to your feet as we do honor the reading of God's inerrant holy word. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy The works of the devil. No one born of God makes the practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident that we are children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word to us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today so thankful for your word, so thankful that we stand knowing that you have inspired only truth. Help us to believe it and understand it now. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So again, he came not... For excellent teaching, although Christ's teaching is the teaching that will endure eternally. He came not merely to set before us a moral example, although his morality was impeccable. He came not so that we would have perfect revelation of God. And yet, those who have seen Christ have seen the Father. We see explicitly in this section of God's Word that He came, that our sins would be taken away and that the works of the devil would be destroyed. Now sin has two reality, uh, realities attached to it. One, sin brings us under the condemnation of the law. Sin causes for you and I who have transgressed God's perfect standard a legal imperilment, a legal problem. And that is what verse 5 speaks to. Jesus came to take away our sin and in Him was no sin. He was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of those who call upon His name. And we can praise Him for that today. But sin also, and I think this is far too often overlooked, sin puts us under the dominion of Satan. Sin causes us To be under the kingdom of darkness. And that is what verse 8 speaks to. That Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It's really what this whole passage is dealing with. Uh, That we would see our sin in the legal sense, in the reality that we've broken the law, but we would also see the reality that we have been set free by the gracious work of Christ and that alone. And that we would live in light of our new identity in Christ, not in light of our old nature. To continue in sin, to keep on sinning means... What John is driving home in verses 4 through 10, if we continue in that path, we are revealing, we don't lose our salvation, we're just revealing that we've never been taken out of the kingdom of Satan and returned redemptively to the kingdom of Christ. And that's what makes verse 8 such an encouragement. It tells us that Christ is the one who came and accomplished the work of redemption. He is the one who has won us out of the kingdom of Satan, not by our own power, not by our own merits, not by something that we can do in our own strength. What John is not saying in verses 4 through 10 is, Sarah, if you would just straighten up and get your act together... Then you can be transferred into the kingdom of light. That's not what he's aiming at. What he's saying is if, in fact, Jesus has redeemed you, you will begin to live in righteousness because he is righteous and you are living under a new rule. This battle for redemption is not one that we could win. And yet it is one that Jesus came to accomplish and He and He alone will get the glory because He and He alone accomplished the victory. His resurrection displays to us, and we'll get to this in more detail in a moment, but His resurrection displays to us the reality that in fact He has already won. Already has authority. So when we come to this text, the first thing that we need to Understand is who is our adversary? Who is the devil in this context? Is he real? I think the the number one problem in Western culture is that we believe in cartoon caricatures of who Satan is, and that is not our adversary. He is not some little red, forked, tailed, horned thing that sits on this side of your, your shoulder. That's not Satan. So we need to have a clear picture of who he is and how he works. We need to not buy into the lie that we can have a view of Christianity but not believe in that silly superstitious Satan. To believe the Bible means that we are people who understand we have a real adversary. The church has one who is against her. The gates of hell will really rage against the church that seeks to proclaim the Word of God. There is no believing the Bible without acknowledging the reality of Satan, this individual that the Bible calls the son of the morning, the God of this world, the serpent, the prince of the power of the air, the strong-armed man. This is the one who met our first father, Adam, in the garden and tempted him to rebel against God along with Eve and in Adam's sin we fell not only under the condemnation of the law not only under a legal problem but at that moment when Adam and Eve sinned they placed themselves under the authority of Satan and that has consumed this world since that since that day Really, the work of the devil, if you'll turn again with me to that well-worn passage. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. Verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 19, is one of these weird paradoxical verses in the Bible. Uh, The reality that John proclaims that we know we are from God, but that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I mean, there can't be a darker reality than that the whole world lies in the power of Satan. And yet, the preface to what he says there is that we are from God. and There is this entire worldview wrapped up in the one verse that just makes me go, oh, that makes the whole world make a whole lot of sense. In its chaos and its disorder and its dysfunction, it is in the grip of Satan. And yet, we, the church, are of God. No wonder the world hates the church because the one who is behind all of that hating is Satan himself. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The moment at which the world came to be in the possession in some sense, and there's an entire series of sermons in the implications of that, was at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned and placed themselves not under the authority of God, but under the authority of Satan. This is what Satan came to do. He came to separate the human race in total from God, to plunge the world into darkness and sin, and to rule and to reign over it. That's what Satan came to do. He he, he was... So jealous of God and despised Him for the goodness that God had bestowed upon Adam and Eve. And so Satan sought to destroy what God had so benevolently done for the human race. And so the world is plunged into religious pride, drunkenness, infidelity, anger, divorce, war, confusion, and the list goes on and on. The reason why we struggle to be... Listen... In America, we know that preamble, uh, that that we are all uh, given, uh, we we should be allowed to pursue our own happiness. The, The only reason why happiness is a pursuit is because Satan sold us a lie. We bought into it. And now the entire world is under his power. All of our suffering. It's because we are separated from the holy triune God. The one who created us in love with good purpose. Who gave us every good blessing. And yet in one lie, all of that was marred. God finished his work and said that it was good And here comes Satan. Now we have to ask this question. How did Satan accomplish his work? What is Satan's primary tactic? How did he fulfill his desire to put enmity between God and man? Well, Genesis chapter 3 and what I've been talking about to this point. He comes into the garden. He tells Eve, listen. And Adam, you will not surely die. You are not going to reap negative consequences. In verse uh, 44 that we read this morning, that Dion read this morning for us, Jesus says, you are of the father your devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. It's who he is, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. As we come to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, there is this Greek word that underlies the word devil here. And I think as soon as I mention it, you'll understand what is the character of Satan. The Greek word is diabolos. It literally means to be one who is engaged in slander. Diabolos in the Verb form means to be one who slanders or breathes out lies against another. Satan's work, his primary tactic, his most powerful tool is that of lies and deception and slander. And beloved, we need to stand this morning and have a clear picture that Satan is not one. Listen, we all get tired of being lied to by politicians, right? And here's the thing. Politicians generally are easy to spot where they're buttering things up and they're peddling some falsehoods. Big, hairy, audacious promises and lies. That drives us nuts. I don't think that Satan works that way. Now, he does at times. But Satan is more cunning than that. He's been at this game for a long time. And his best tool are subtle lies, little errors, minor shifts in doctrine. That's how Satan works. Do you want to know why the church is so divided this morning? It's not because God has not been clear in in his word. It is because Satan has sent false converts in amongst the people of God throughout church history to speak subtle lies into the church it's what he's done from the beginning he is the father of all lies and so we need to be careful not only of big audacious errors but also of subtle errors and we need to be humbled to acknowledge the reality that in our sinful frail state we're all prone to error now who is satan's chief target if 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 lies and deceit and and diabolical slander is the character of Satan, then who is his chief target? Well, that answer is clear. Because he comes and the first thing that he does is he interacts with God's redemptive word and that is recorded. I I think that it would be a gift to Satan if we didn't have Genesis chapter 3, wouldn't it? But we can see his lies plainly from the beginning. And we can see who is the one that Satan really is angry and after, and that is God himself. Satan aims his subtle lies at who God is, and every one of us have bought into these lies. Some of us, in, in fact, have been raised in systems of thought that have allowed subtle character assassinations against the attributes of God. Beloved, one of the most difficult things for your pastor is that I have beloved friends who will tell me. They'll, they'll come to, and, and I don't, it's not all about this, but this is just an example and it's at the forefront of my mind. I've had beloved, near to my heart, professors who in my course of study in the word of God who have told me you know Jay in in your understanding of, of, of man's choice in salvation and what God does you really need to balance those things out do you see the subtle lie and shift there that we are going to take the attributes of God and anything about man and balance them out Those are subtle character assassinations, not meaning to, not out of a heart desiring to, but against the person of God. And that is what Satan does all the time. And there are some of us in this room that have been brought up up in systems where we've been taught that that Jesus and the the triune God of all of the universe is nothing more than a cosmic Santa Claus. And and that if we do uh, good things, then He will reward us for that. And, And really, God is... Um, not sovereign and God wants us to be happy and he's trying to bring that to pass but he just there's so much evil in the world and then there's this dualism there are so many subtle lies that Satan peddles and the first place the seed for every lie is lobbed at the character and the person of who God is. Friends, God is the eternal creator, the sustainer, the sovereign one of all of the universe. And we must be careful not to believe lies. If we think again back to the garden. God made man and woman perfect with an inclination to do right. God gave them a perfect world to live in. God gave them companionship. He gave them each other. He said, Adam, it's not good that you would be alone. didn't owe Adam anything. And yet he gave Adam companionship in the human form and family and all of those things. What God did was, beloved, it was good. God gave them also the privilege of walking with him, communing with him in the cool of the day. The God of all creations, the Holy One, in his kindness, made fellowship part of the reality of what he bestowed upon Adam and Eve in the garden, which, after all of the rebellion, by the time we get to John chapter 1, verse 4 here, there is an entire indictment against humanity for our rebellion against him. And the glorious thing is this, that John could actually say... That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That should cause us to worship in our hearts this morning that even in spite of all of our rebellion, God is still doing his redemptive work to restore fellowship between himself and fallen humanity. Isn't that amazing? And in all of that good, and and again, God declares that what he had done was good, and it was. Do you know what Adam and Eve added to paradise? In Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 rather, do you know what they added to paradise? Nothing. They didn't do anything. But they had been bestowed benevolently by God everything that was good. Anything that was good was because God had done it. They were surrounded by the goodness of God. They had been given relationship, family, all of those things. Communion with God. There was no indictment against the character of God in why He created the world. And yet here comes Satan and he tempts Adam and Eve. Do you really believe That he knows what's good for you? He's just trying to keep you down. As soon as you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like him. He just wants to repress you and keep you enslaved. Do you not hear the hiss of Satan's lie in that? The reality is he levels against God the indictment that God would want to enslave humanity. All the while, that is the very motive for Satan's lie. And we have an entire narrative. You pick up any history book; a book I don't care what the slant is, and it will record the reality that men and men and women, boys and girls, are at this moment, apart from the grace of God, enslaved to the person of Satan. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and yet Satan's lives are always aimed at God and beloved. Here is the reality for every one of us. I never want Life Point Baptist Church to be a group of people who say, we have the attributes and the beauty of God in our mind wholly, and we are the church that that understands Him well. I want us always to come into this place face down, realizing that there is a propensity in all of our hearts, To mar the character of God and twist Him into who we want Him to be instead of allowing Him to reveal Himself clearly in the pages of Scripture and mold us by who He is in His character. Might we not take the attributes of God and the lies that Satan has pandered lightly? God, help us not to distort His character. First lies of Satan are always aimed at the character of God. The second front of Satan's lies are related in not only does Satan want us to believe that God's character is off, that he doesn't love us, that he hasn't given us what's good, but he also wants us to believe that God's will, that God's decrees are off. And I believe that this is one of the great battlegrounds in the church in our generation. And in the previous generations as well. If, if Satan can get us to disbelieve that God is loving and good and wise and sovereign. Then he goes on to attack his plan for us. And we think that God's law is cumbersome. We think that God is narrow in his view of how we should live, his, live our lives. We, we think, l- listen, we know in 2021 how better to live our lives than God does. God certainly, when he instituted the law, couldn't have understood all of the pressures that we face in 2021. And that's just not true. God's law, God's decrees are sure. Are sure. God's plan is constantly attacked by Satan. There is constantly this bid in, in, in our lives, in our hearts, that, that when bad things happen, Satan wants us to blame God for it. I don't know how many testimonies that I've heard, and it's almost just a natural outworking of the human heart and disposition that when life goes wrong, we question whether or not the decrees ultimately of God are good. And here's the thing. Many theologians have come along And they have seen this problem that evil exists in the world and and we want to believe in a good God. So we'll develop entire theologies that unhitch God's sovereignty over the universe so that man is free to believe that God is good and that God doesn't have anything to do with their suffering. The problem is that goes back to the first problem and they're attacking the character of God. We must not believe a lie that God has somehow taken His sovereign hand off of His creation. Satan is still, although the world lies in the power of the evil one, the evil one lies in the power of our God. He is the one who ultimately can stop everything. And so if He allows it, is he not, and we are in Christ, it's not for our destruction, but for our growth in Christ. But we don't want to believe that. And there's a lot of struggle in that. And I'm not even picking at that. I'm just saying this. This is the point. Hear me on this. Satan wants you to think that both the commandments and the eternal decrees of God are somehow marred. But I promise you, God's character is perfect and God's plan is perfect. Not only that. third. Not only does Satan slander God's character and his will, his decree, Satan also slanders God's warnings. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you will surely Die. And what does Satan do? You will not surely die. He undermines God's warning. You won't die. Don't believe him. You will become like him. Again, he's holding you back. And yet, God shows that in his judgment, he is always right and he always speaks truth. Yet today in our own lives we think back about what happened in Genesis chapter 3. But we need to know in our own lives today Satan says in so many subtle ways no one will know. If you sin just a little bit and you break God's eternal decree nothing will go wrong. What difference will a little theological error make? And we believe him. And we convince ourselves in a small way that we have freedom and autonomy from God, that we can be our own creator, and we can be our own, um, we can be our own Lord, our own master. We can live life our way. I was talking to Ed at lunch uh, last Sunday, and he, he mentioned a, a song uh, by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. And we talked about how wretched that song is. But that is the heart impulse of every human being. I want to do it my way. But do you know what happens when we do it our way? When we ignore the warnings of the word of God as he has decreed them? We end up finding the way of the transgressor is hard. The freedom that we thought we had by rebelling against God turns out to just be a trap. And we ensnare ourselves to what will ultimately destroy us. Paul writing to the church at Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. Friends, when you see that phrase, do not be deceived, remember that God is insulating His people against the lies of Satan. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that He will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The reality is Satan promises in his lie so much fulfillment if we would just rebel against God. But in the end, in the end, all that we find in our rebellion is that rebellion against a good holy, wise, merciful, sovereign creator is death. If we sin against Him, we reap corruption. And yet, the wonderful narrative of the Word of God is that while we were yet sinners, while we were still de- dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ came, He appeared, He died for the ungodly. He came to destroy the works of God. Satan. We have to ask the question, why would Satan do all of this? Why did Satan lie at the garden? Why is he continuing? Why does will he go on lying forever? One, because that is in his nature. That is who he is. That is his character, Jesus says. And ultimately, his desire, and I've already said this, is to bring us under his power. It's not only to rob us of life, although he does that, But it's ultimately to rob us of fellowship and joy. Do you know what one of the most marvelous statements in all of this letter is found in... Verse 4 of chapter 1, John writing, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And in verse 3, he says that we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. There are these two grand realities that we have as Christians, and that is fellowship with God and joy in all that he has done. And the reason why Satan lies is the exact opposite of why John writes, and that is to rob us of fellowship with God and to rob us of joy in our lives in communion communing with the one who has created us and sustained us and redeemed us. That is why Satan goes on lying because not only does he want us to bring want to bring misery and hardship into our lives, but he wants us to be separated from God and be under his thumb. Again, Satan wants us to believe these lies. And our nature is so fallen that without the work of the Spirit, we are so prone to do so. Friends, we can experience misery and pain and discomfort and we can experience all of the natural consequences of sowing to the flesh and reaping corruption and you know what we will do without the work of the spirit in our lives you know why addiction and pornography and so much of this self-destructive behavior that we find in our society is rampant Because apart from the word of God, we don't believe God. We believe the lie and we go on sinning even into the grave. That's who we are. And then someone wants to stand up and say, yeah, but people are basically good. That's basically a lie from Satan. Because we're not good without God. We will never be redeemed, we'll never be restored, we'll never function in the way that we should. And without God's kindness, we would continue to limit God. We, we would continue to believe maybe his plan isn't what, what is best for me. We would continue to blame him for our unhappiness all the while Satan is the one who has sold us the lie. We go on robbing and murdering and stealing, we get angry, we act in pride, we're impulsive, we're discontent. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And why? Because Satan wants to rule over men because he despises God and he despises humanity. And we play into his hands. So many people, I'm sure as you have worked in your vocation as a Christian to evangelize. So many people will look at the state of the world and they'll say, well, there can't be a good God if he would create a world like this. Well, the problem is God didn't create the world as it is today. God created the world that was good and upright and inclined to do righteousness. And do you know who gave it over to Satan? Our father, Adam. In his volition, in his free will, he sold the entire human race into the kingdom of darkness. Do you not see the absurdity of the lie that is believed in unbelieving people? They blame God for what Satan has done. We believe lies. Satan's lies are not They are, in fact, in the scope of human history, powerful. Now think about this. Think about the world that lies in the power of the evil one. The one who is a slander, who slanders who God is... Who slanders the decrees of God and who slanders the commandments of God and the warnings of God saying that God is a liar. Think about the reality that we have gone through human history where entire races of people will massacre others. Think about the Holocaust and the absurdity of people saying that there is no God in their heart as the psalmist says. Think about how awful we have actually been in the face of God and then I want to read read to you from Luke chapter 2 and I want you to see the contrast and the glorious nature of our God Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 14 and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night this was a world these shepherds were in a world where the world was in the power of the evil one A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Beloved. If the purpose of this incarnation, of finding this baby in a manger, is merely just to give us a good example of what humility looks like, well, that might be good, but it's not glorious. If his purpose was just to teach morality, it might be good, but it wouldn't be glorious. If his purpose was to just make a better society and to keep people propped up in their socioeconomic standing, it might be good, maybe... But it wouldn't be glorious. The glory of Luke chapter 2 comes home in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. This baby that we found in a manger that, that the angels of heaven are glorifying God for is the one who has come to destroy the work of Satan. That is why He has come. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the work of, of the devil. Jesus came into the world that was in the power of the evil one, in the hand of Satan. He came to crush all of the lies, all of the slander, and to redeem His people from their sin for His glory. How often have we bought into the Christian Christmas narrative that there's the sweet, cute, gurgling Jesus who came so that we would understand what it is to be gentle and lowly. And praise God for his example in all of the moral categories. But the reality is that tiny child in that manger is a declaration of war against all of the lies of Satan. Glory to God in the highest. These angels aren't just singing some sentimental junk. They are glorifying God. He's going to set these people free from the demonic lies of the diabolical one. He's going to take them from the power of the kingdom of this dark evil one into his own kingdom. And if we're going to argue that man is basically good and that in his own strength he could come to salvation, here's the question. Why when this child who came to set the lies of Satan to nothing, why is it that we find the most devout religious people on the earth who are trying in their own strength to do what God wants them to do, why is it that we find those people are the very instruments that are used to kill that child? Why? Because we're not good. No, not one. Because we buy into lies, every one of us. But Jesus has come to wage war against those lies. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's Jesus speaking. This is war. Friends, do you know, I think, one of the most horrendous narratives in all of Scripture is that when Jesus came, Herod did what? What did Herod do? He made a decree that all the firstborn children would die, right? Who do you think was behind that decision? Who do you think influenced that lie and spun this idea? It was Satan. Herod was against him because he might usurp an earthly throne. But Satan was against him because Satan knew his time had come and Christ was going to dispel all of his lies. Jesus came to destroy the works of of Satan. Jesus came to reveal that the Diabolos is who his name says he is. The slanderer. The liar. The the word here to destroy literally, it's luo in the Greek. It literally means to loose. It literally translated what 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says is that Jesus came to loose us from Diabolos. To set us free. That we would believe the truth and not a lie. He's come to take the chains off of our hearts in areas where we have believed less of God than who he really is. And the question then must stand, well, how has he done this? How has he done this in a child? How has he done this in an infant? Do you know that while there is a moral implication of the manger and the God of the heavens condescending in humility to lay in squalor and that that is a good thing, there's also this reality that our God, when he wages war, he doesn't use the strongest man and the mightiest armies. He can fell the liar with one child. A child who is sinless. A child who is God. How does he do this? Well, first, let's look at the incarnation. Incarnation. Satan lies to us and says God is unloving, he's aloof, he's unconcerned. All he wants to do is keep you enslaved. And yet while we were yet sinners, Christ took on human form for our ransom. Satan wants us to believe that God hates us, that God is against us, and and, and that he only wants to take from us and lord over us in a heavy-handed way. And you know what the incarnation says? You're a liar. Because he sent his son. Jesus left the courts of heaven to have us spit in his face, to jeer at him, to mock at him. And if you are here today and you think that without the Spirit of God you would do anything better than what the Pharisees did, you have yet to understand who you are. And I love you enough to tell you that. And in all of that, Jesus only responded in love. He only responded in humility and kindness. That babe in Bethlehem is no mere moral example. He is a repudiation that God does not love His people. Secondly, look at his life. We're going to talk about the life of Christ. Look at it. We have been sold the lie that to live a holy life is something narrow, it's something small-minded, it's something little. And yet here we find the Holy One of God living the holy life that you and I could not live because of our fallen nature. And He lives that perfectly holy life. And you know what? It's not been a small life at all. Even lost people have spent their entire academic careers looking into this life saying, look at how marvelous it is. Because the law of God, when lived out properly, is not constraining. It is beautiful. And it results in redemption. The life of Jesus ultimately points to the reality that Satan is a liar. Let us look at his teaching. Do you remember Jesus walking after his resurrection on that road to Emmaus? And in Luke chapter 24, verse 27 it's recorded and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself he took the word of God and he pointed to himself and he pointed to the reality that he was the only one who could accomplish redemption and you know what the individuals who were with him said as he left did not our hearts burn within us Jesus' teaching wasn't merely there to make a better society. Jesus' teaching was there to dispel the lies of Satan. Good preaching does two things. It points us to Jesus and it refutes the lies of Satan. Or if we look at Jesus... Uh, preaching at the Sermon on the Mount. He exposes sin for what it really is. We are legalists by nature. We will bring the law so low. Well, I've only transgressed the law if I've done the most heinous things way over here. And Jesus says, no, 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 boys. Sin is not only in the external of how you act, it's in your heart. And if you are angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you lust after a woman, you are are guilty of adultery. He points to the heart and he says, you are unclean. You are depraved through and through. The Sermon on the Mount is the best defense of total depravity, but that's for a different day. Jesus came to destroy the lies that religious people pander. And those come from Satan. Look at him in his miracles. What's he doing there? No doubt he's giving credibility to his ministry. He's demonstrating his authority over creation. He's revealing the character of who he is. But in every miracle that Jesus performs, he is undoing the slanderous lies of Satan. Look at Luke chapter 13 with me. You'll remember this narrative. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath unite his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, listen, whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from her bond on the Sabbath day. What is Jesus doing in that narrative? He is coming to destroy the works of Diabolos. What of the cross? What of Christ? climbing that hill, being mocked and ridiculed, being scorned and rejected, being an outcast, being nailed to the cross, all the while telling His Father, begging, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, in that moment, is dealing with our guilt. He is taking on our penalty. He is showing us that God is true in His warnings, that at the At the outworking of sin must come death, but our glorious Savior is looking at each one of us and saying, you are not the one that will finally take on you the wrath of God. I will bear that in your place. What greater love could there be than that? That Jesus would hang on the cross for sinners, for those who mocked Him, who persecuted Him, who came after Him. That Jesus would be the one who would take away the sins of all of those who would call upon His name and make us right with God. And not only take away our sin, but impute His righteousness to our account. In the face of that, can we really believe that God doesn't love us? That He is somehow unmerciful That is why Jesus came, was to dispel the lies of Satan and complete the work of redemption. Or what about the resurrection? Paul calls death the last enemy. And Jesus shows that even this last consequence has been conquered by his power. John chapter 12, verse 27 through 31. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is Jesus praying. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Resurrection. The raising of Jesus to new life is the banner over the grave that our Savior has won and that Satan is a capital L liar that he's not forgotten us what about the ascension and the enthronement we we land on there's no power in preaching without the resurrection that's true but so often in our preaching and in our reading and our meditating on christ the ascension and enthronement are set to the side but the enthronement and ascension of of christ are realities that the early church clung to acts chapter 7 verses 55 and 56 at the stoning of stephen But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his power. After making purification for our sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. What is he saying there? He's saying all the works of Satan have been defeated. And at this moment, beloved Christ, our advocate, is on the throne. You know who else that you know who else Satan slanders? The brethren. And this moment, this morning, Jesus is on the throne, and every time we sin and there's an indictment from Satan, look at the people you saved, God. Look at what they've done. Jesus doesn't plead our merits. He pleads His blood. Amen. And then we have people that want to come in and, well, let's talk about good works. Let's not. Because we have so few, and even those we have are stained, filthy rags. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What a joy! Our Savior is ruling and reigning over the liar. And yet Satan's still weaving his lies and the world's still believing those lies. But beloved, I promise you this, not for long. Because our Savior is coming again. Satan's lied about God himself. He's lied about the decrees of God. He's lied about the consequences of sin. He lies to the church today about the promise of the second uh, second coming of Christ. Saying that won't come to pass. You're foolish to believe that. You might lose your job if you actually trust in what this Bible says. Amen. Anyhow, we can go on believing knowing that in the incarnation... In the life, in the teaching, in the miracles, in the resurrection, in the cross, in the enthronement, our God has displayed his authorities over the slanderer and one day he will come to finally vanquish him forever. Amen. Jesus came to do away with the lies of Satan. We have all of his marvel, marvelous work, all of his life that point to the reality of Satan being a liar. So what are we to do? Well, there are two things, beloved, and I'll wrap this up. One, we need to always in our lives not look to the Bible as though it were this mere moral, sentimental, liberal document begging us to just be better. Friends, the Word of God is the declaration that our King Has won. We need to remember his victories. We need to remember everything that his work and his life says about who he is and how his decrees come to pass. And then we need to wait patiently, looking forward to that day when we will be the ones to behold the final victory and we will stand around the throne. and we will praise him forever. We will sing together save to sin no more. Oh, we will realize that Jesus came not to give us an advantage over the grave, not to give us an opportunity for salvation, not to maybe somehow some way allow us to work out in purgatory our own salvation. Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan and that he has done eternally. Do you know heaven will be a place? I think this is, we talk about heaven being the place where there are streets of gold. But as an expositor of the word of God, one that wants you to understand clearly what God has said, no more and no less. The glorious thing of heaven is that there will be no more lies. There will be no more church member who is drawn away after a foolish lie. What John is writing about here is the Gnostics are drawing people away to the silliness of material things being bad and the immaterial things being good and all of the other stupid theologies throughout human history. Those lies will be put away and we will see Jesus for who he really is and we will worship him in spirit and in truth. And I've got to get done or we're going to have a mess. Um, I don't want you to forget this either though. Don't think of, of Christ's work only being future and past. Remember, Jesus' work is going on today. Remember what Ed reminded us of out of Nehemiah? They had a mind to work. We need to be reminded that our Savior is still working in this generation. He's still drawing people unto Himself. He is still loosing people from the power and the penalty of Satan's diabolical slander. Truth matters. Why Jesus came matters. Jesus came for the truth. And the truth is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord our God. And He will have His way. Colossians chapter 1, and I'll close here, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, this Sunday afternoon, would you do your pastor a favor and meditate all day long on how many lies your wonderful Savior has dispelled throughout your walk with Him. How many things have you found to be untrue that you once believed? Maybe that you aren't worth anything, and yet in the cross you find that even the second member of the Trinity would die for you. Maybe you've believed somehow that truth doesn't really matter and that all of these things of the Word of God don't matter. But God in His grace has brought you and given you a hunger for His Word. And the more that you receive of His Word, the more that you want because you've come to understand what Jesus has said is true and that is the truth will set you free. It will loose you by the power of Christ. Meditate all day today on the things that that Christ has done the way he has set you free from the diabolical one. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence longing for the day when lies will be no more. We come longing for the day when we understand not in a mirror dimly, but face to face, that we will behold you in all of your glory, knowing that you have accomplished redemption. Father, we desire not to concoct our own religion, but to merely live before your word Accountable to everything that you've said. We know that you are good and wise and merciful and holy and just. Father, we know that your decrees are right and good and whatever comes to pass is by your doing ultimately, and we trust you with that. And Father, we know that when you command us, when you put imperatives in our lives, it's not to make us small, it's to help us to live in a glorious way. Might you inflame in the hearts of these people a clearer vision of who you are. We would leave the lies, that we would let them go.